It's Christmas! Well, tonight, thank God it's there instead of you. Oh, Christmas Day, my ass. I'm driving home for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Christmas to you and all. Can you believe we're actually almost a third of the way through the year? Only another six months and it's basically Christmas season again. So let's keep talking Christmas, or more specifically British Christmas, because this is Murray Britsmas, the podcast that talks all sorts of festive things from a British perspective. I have a penultimate offering from Christmas at War, sharing stories of the hospitals and nurses trying to help in any way they can during the festive season, during the wartime. I'll also discuss some more British indie Christmas songs from bands you may not know, and discuss The Blue Carbuncle, a seasonal set episode of the BBC's Sherlock Holmes. I recently read a bunch of short stories following the adventures of, surely, one of the most popular detectives in all of fiction, Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. They were really fun to read, and although some were a little dated and slow, most were gripping thanks to their brevity, focus and super sharp characters. So much so that over the years there have been numerous adaptations of Holmes and of course his sidekick Dr John Watson. From radio to film to TV, there have been faithful versions, modernised adaptations and all sorts of oddities such as sci-fi animation and anime shows. The BBC had to adapt one of the most popular British characters ever for a TV audience and so they did. No, not that one with Doctor Strange and Tim from The Office. We're going back to the 80s with the BBC Sherlock Holmes series that started in 1984. With Jeremy Brett as Holmes and David Burke in the first season and Edward Hardwick in the second or fourth series as Watson. Jeremy Brett was a famed stage actor initially before going into TV in shows such as The Three Musketeers, and then making his biggest film mark with a role in the classic adaptation of My Fair Lady with Audrey Hepburn. He was also set to take over as James Bond from Connery, but turned down the role, not wanting it to take over his career. This decision then led to probably his most famous role, as Sherlock Holmes in the BBC TV show, appearing in 41 episodes between 1984 and 1994. He also played the role on stage during this time, and undertook meticulous research creating a 77-page Baker Street file, which he kept with him at all times on set. He said the character was like the dark side of the moon for him, kind of taken over his life, with him reading and rereading the stories between shooting and trying to create his own more detailed backstory to add more passion and personality to the role. And it worked and helped him become a defining Sherlock of the 80s and early 90s for many in Britain and around the world. And the series kind of has a Christmas episode, just as there is kind of a Christmas story in the Sherlock canon. 
The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle is a story written by Doyle and first published in January 1892, but set just before Christmas time. And the TV adaptation follows the same setup and was the seventh episode of the first season, actually coming out in summer, bringing some almost half Christmas vibes on the 5th of June 1984. At the start of the episode, after some atmospheric shots of daily chaotic Victorian street life over the opening music, we get an extra titles credit bit with a jewel shape floating on the screen, the titular blue carbuncle we presume, with numerous people killing one another for it throughout the ages. But then we settle on a countess in a carriage, played by Rosalind Knight, well known on British screens for appearances in films such as Carry On Nurse, Carry On Teacher and About a Boy, as well as TV shows such as Gimme 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 and Friday Night Dinner as Horrible Grandma. Some festive decorations are seen in the grand lobby, and then we see her butler and servant in flagrante. My God, she's back! She's getting out of her carriage! Come on, Ryder, get a move on! Yeah, look lively. All right, get a move on. All right. And maybe she won't want workmen under her feet. Yeah, all right. I've finished, don't worry. Quick job, like you said. Bellboys bringing up presents are rewarded a very tiny amount, and the Countess reveals her own thoughts on the festive season. Ring for tea, Cusack. Yes, milady. I need something to sustain me. I do find preparing for Christmas quite an ordeal. Yes, milady. And then... A bath, I think. And whilst the servants prepare her bath, a scream is heard. We see John Horner, the workman we saw at the house, is arrested whilst looking at prezzies for his kids with his wife. It's the doll for the girl and the boat for the boy, right? Right. <laughs> Spending the loot already, are we, Horner? What do you mean? I've done nothing, what do you mean? John Frederick Horner, I hereby arrest you on the charge of stealing the valuable gem known as the Blue Carbuncle, the property of the Countess of Morcar. Anything you say? I didn't do it, I tell you, I didn't do it! It's no use, Orna. The man at the hotel gave a very good description of you. Constable! I didn't do it, I tell you! And we cut to a seemingly unrelated situation of a commissaire called Peterson, a kind of police officer, visiting an irascible Holmes with a dead Christmas goose. For Mrs Henry Baker, and obviously not your hat. <laughs> no, sir. Well, there were peculiar circumstances, and I didn't know what to do for the best. It hardly seemed a matter for the police. So I talked to the wife about it, and she suggests I'll come and see you. Not the wise, Mrs. Peterson. Sit down, my dear fellow, and describe these peculiar circumstances to me. He tells Holmes of seeing a bunch of drunkards harassing an older man with a goose. Boy! What's happening? Blimey, it's a copper! Copper! Get out of here! 
and despite his story, Holmes isn't all that interested in the goose. Now then, Commissioner, have you purchased your own bird? Uh, no, not yet. No, then no. I suggest that you carry off this goose so that it may fulfil its ultimate destiny while I retain the battered hat of the unknown gentleman who has lost his Christmas dinner. Well, uh, if you think I should, Mr. Holmes. I do, indeed. For there are signs, in spite of the frost, that this bird should be prepared without unnecessary delay. Well, if that's all right, Mr. Holmes. I will, of course, keep you in touch with the developments. Very good, sir. But back with the Countess, and she is still very annoyed. But you still haven't found the jewel. Not yet, no, my lady, but we do have the man Horner. Or have a clue as to its whereabouts. And I think we may assume that he had one accomplice, if not more. Well, what of that? Contrary to popular fiction, my lady, there is very little honour amongst thieves, and even less with the right inducement. And then we see Watson informing Holmes of this case from the newspaper. The Countess of Morcar is offering a thousand pounds for the return of the blue carbuncle. Inspector Bradstreet of B Division is in charge of the case and has arrested Mr. John Horner, a plumber aged 36, who protested his innocence in the strongest terms. Circumstantial evidence was so strong that the case has been referred to the Assizes. Horner, who showed signs of intense emotion during the proceedings, faded away at the conclusion and was carried from the court. Oh, excuse me, you are engaged. I am interrupting your study of that hat. But Holmes is more interested with the battered hat before him and does his usual thing. Tell me what it is that you can infer from that hat. That the man is highly intellectual is, of course, obvious. And also that he was fairly well-to-do within the past three years, although now he has fallen upon evil days. He had foresight, but less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression, which, when taken with a decline in his fortunes, seems to indicate an evil influence. Probably drink. This may account also for the fact that his wife has ceased to love him. My dear Holmes, he has, however, retained some degree of self-respect. Now, he leads a sedentary life. He's out of training entirely. He's middle-aged, has grizzled hair, which he has had cut within the last few days, and which he anoints with lime cream. It is also highly improbable that he has uh, gas laid on in his house. Ha, ha, ha! Yeah, well, now you are certainly joking. Not in the least. And the commissaire returns in a flap. See what the wife found in its crop. Oh, Jeff Peterson. This is a treasure trove indeed. You know what you've got. A diamond. Precious stone, but it cuts glass like it was putty. Mm, it is more than a precious stone. It is the the Hotel Cosmopolitan Robbery. The Blue Carbuncle. And Holmes sets out to entice in the Mr. Baker, the owner of the hat and the goose, to find out more. Found. At the corner of Goode Street, a goose and a black felt hat. Mr. Henry Baker can have saying by applying at 6.30 this evening at 221B Baker Street. Clear and concise. 
Yes, very, but will he see it? Well, I'm sure he will keep an eye on the evening papers. For the poor man, the loss was a heavy one. Oh, Peterson. Uh, just nip down to the advertising agency and have this put in all the evening papers. Henry Baker arrives at 221B Baker Street, played by Frank Middlemas, an actor known for his role in As Time Goes By, who is then sort of questioned and tested by Holmes. About your bird. We were compelled to eat it. To eat it? It would have been a little use to anyone had we not done so. But we have another goose upon the sideboard there, which I presume will answer your purpose equally well. It is about the same weight and perfectly fresh, as you can see. Oh, yes, most certainly. Of course, we have kept the feathers, legs, crop, and so on, of your own bird, if you so wish. They might be useful to me as relics of my adventure, but beyond that, I, I can hardly see what use the disjecta membra of my old acquaintance could possibly be to me. Oh, no, sir, with your permission, I, I shall confine my attentions to the excellent bird which I perceive upon your sideboard. And he tells the story of how he came to get the goose. Before calling in at the Alpha Public House, several of us who work in the museum frequent that establishment. And this year, our good host, uh, Mr. Windigate, had instigated a goose club, by which, on consideration of some few pence each week, we were to receive a bird at Christmas. Mr. Baker, a very fine bird, as promised. A magnificent specimen indeed, landlord, eh? Would you back in a wife's good books, eh? Yes, well. So Holmes and Watson continue their investigation at the pub with a difficult seller called Breckendridge, but he cleverly manipulates the man. Inquiries, it's more like the Inquisition. I'm not telling you. Ah. Well, then, the bet's off. What bet? Ah, what bet? Well, I'm always ready to back my opinion in the matter of fouls. And I have a fiver with my friend here that the bird that I chose is country bread, right, Watson? What? Oh, 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 yes, yes, absolutely. Ah, you've lost your money, then, because it's town bread. It is nothing of the kind. I say it is. I don't believe you. Come on, pay up, Holmes. What do you think I wouldn't know? Me who's been handling fowl since I was a nipper. I'll tell you, all the birds that went to the offer were town bred. <laughs> You'll never make me believe that. Come on, come on, do the decent, Holmes. Will you have a bet, then? Oh, just taking your money. But I'll have a sovereign with you just to teach you not to be obstinate. Done! Right. Now then, Mr. Cocksure, you see these here books here? Well, this is a list of all the folk what I buy off. And straight away, we see the male servant from the Countess's house also visiting Breckenridge. Mrs. Oakshot told me. You bring Mrs. Oakshot here, and I'll answer her. But what have you got to do with it, eh? Did I buy the geese off you? No, but one of them was mine, all the same. Well, you go and ask Mrs. Oakshot for it. She told me to ask you. You can ask the King of Prussia for all I care. Oh, I've had enough of this. Go on, get out of it. This may save us a trip to Brixton. 
and Holmes and Watson manage to get this man, James Ryder, back to Baker Street to get at the truth. I think we should know the name of the gentleman whom we have the pleasure of assisting, don't you, Watson? John Robinson. Oh, no, no, no. Your real name. I, it is so awkward doing business with an alias. Well, then, uh, my real name's Ryder. James Ryder. Yes, Mr Ryder. Up at attendant at the Hotel Cosmopolitan. And he eventually spills the beans. I thought it was best to get away with the stone as quick as I could, for I didn't know at what moment the police might not take it into their heads to search me and my room. There was nowhere in the hotel where it would be safe, so I went out, as if on some commission, and made for my sister's house to think things over. My sister had told me that I might have the pick of her geese for a Christmas present. I picked out one of the birds, a fine big one with a grey head. I pushed the stone down its throat far as my finger could reach. And I thought all my troubles was over. When... Whatever are you doing with that bird, Jem? Uh, yeah, uh... You said I might have one for Christmas, so I was just feeling which is the fattest. We already set yours aside. Jim's bird, we call it. Uh, yeah, if, if it's all the same to you, Maggie, I'd rather have that one I was handling just now. And I carried the bird to my pal. We got a knife and we opened it up. My heart turned to water. There was no sign of the stone. And I knew some terrible mistake must have occurred. Tell me, just tell me, was there another one which had a grey head? That's right, too. I could never tell them apart, I couldn't. But what's the matter? What's all the hurry? And despite the thieving revelations, Holmes shows some seasonal mercy. Get hard. What? Heavens bless you, sir. No more words. Get out. And whilst ringing in the season with the drink, Watson worries about the captured Horner. Midnight. Merry Christmas, Harold. And to you, my dear friend. Just a minute. Holmes, <laughs> I cannot contemplate eating while John Horner is still on remand. Now, do you suppose that Brad Street or one of his Colleagues might still be at their desks. It will. You're quite right, Watson. Come, let's go. But of course, thanks to Sherlock, he is freed to see his wife and children on Christmas in quite a sudden and quick ending. I remember really enjoying this story when I read it, and this TV version is incredibly faithful to the written original. It's a very authentic tone and style, and I think the whole look of the show is brilliantly classic. If you like a bit of proper Sherlock, the show really delivers with its characterisation, costume, setting and mood. Holmes is suitably irritated yet brilliant, but Watson is slightly too much of a bit part for my liking, but still very effective in the role. 
and the rest of the cast do a great job from the uppity countess to the put-upon horner to the aggravated goose seller even. The ending felt slightly abrupt and rushed, but I think that's sometimes the nature of Sherlock short stories too. All wrapped up and off we go at the end. Regardless, it's a fun watch and I'd recommend it to anyone who loves a festive episode and a detective whodunit. I've been sharing excerpts from a book called Christmas at War by Caroline Taggart which takes surreal accounts of people from all sorts of backgrounds sharing their experiences of life in the UK and on the front line during World War II. I've shared sections on presents, decorations, civilian life and soldiers. I'm into my penultimate chapter now and this one focuses on those working in hospitals, especially nurses, and how they are dealing with looking after injuries while attempting to lift spirits during the festive season spent at war. The workers tried their best to make these difficult places happy such as one anonymous nurse reported. I thought I was unlucky when I found I was to be on duty over Christmas, but I was wrong. It was grand. On Christmas Eve, we all got to work with decorations and coloured paper, holly and cotton wool. And in a short time, the place was transformed. It really looked like Christmas and felt like it. The more so, when 30 of the nurses went round in a sort of crocodile from ward to ward, with nightlights in lanterns on poles singing carols. It was lovely, we made a real Christmas Eve. On Christmas Day, we were up and had breakfast at the usual time, but there were eggs and bacon. 7.30 on duty and plenty to do. I was in the maternity ward and we had a busy day. We'd painted in large letters on the windows at the top of the ward, business as usual, and got what we asked for. Three babies were born. The third arrived just before the King's speech in the afternoon. I'm glad I'd been looking forward all day to hearing the King speak. The babies were two boys and a girl. The only one to get a Christmassy name was the girl, called Carol. Christmas dinner was the high spot. The honorary surgeon and physicians came in to carve turkeys in each ward. One surgeon, quite a serious gentleman, came dressed as a girl guide waving a tiny Union Jack. Incredibly funny. The trolleys went round the wards decorated and draped with streamers. One of the most enjoyable features of Christmas was the discarding of the rigid formality of a hospital and finding human and friendly souls. It made us feel very much like a family especially with the babies. Yvonne was a nurse on a children's ward and wrote in her diary the following. We were very lucky at Lewisham in London. There was a Canadian organisation that used to send over big boxes of tin food and stuff. The patients and us had lots of extra food, which was good for us. Tins of spam, tins of fruit, all sorts of things. They'd even send oranges. Christmas was lovely on the ward. The children varied in age from a few weeks to 10 years old. Once they were ten, they went on to the adult ward, poor things. A couple of months before Christmas, we'd have a meeting to discuss what we could do, and one of the doctors always offered to be Father Christmas. Where he got the costumes from, I don't know, but he managed. I suppose he'd had it before the war, and just got it out again, year after year. He'd go round and give out presents and laugh and joke with the children. We hadn't had much money, but we used to put together what we had and try to buy a little present for each of the children. Fortunately, at Christmas quite a few of them went home, so there wasn't a tremendous number, but some were very ill, or chronically ill, so they stayed in. Some of the parents were very good and used to bring things in, not just for their own child, but for the others. And people didn't have much to spare in those days, so it was very kind. The doctors were good too. They even arranged entertainment with proper singers and musicians. We'd get two or three wards together and have a concert. We'd do a Christmas dinner, and as many of the children as could manage would sit around the table, We'd have chicken or whatever we could get. I really enjoyed it on the children's ward. 
Although it was wartime and there was rationing, we never went hungry, and nor did the patients. And finally, Angela was part of the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Military Nursing Service and was sent abroad to West Bengal in 1942, and she wrote this in her diary. This was the first Christmas away from home for most of our patients and we felt we must make it a good one. There was no problems about food. Goodies poured in from all directions, particularly the Red Cross, who were renowned for their fruitcake. Private Watkins, that little Geordie, got his pals together and decorated the ward. He'd been cured once but managed to have another bout of it just before Christmas. I found several of the patients making mistletoe under his direction. Little balls of cotton wool stuck on leafy twigs from the compound. Mary, myself and Sister Tuck, who looked very much like her namesake, Friar Tuck in a girth and rosy complexion, went down to the bazaar on the day before Christmas to buy nuts and fruit and made trifles in the afternoon. The sisters and doctors who were off duty went to a midnight service and it was 2.30am before we got to bed. And on the day of Christmas herself she wrote, and on the day of Christmas itself she wrote, this is one of the happiest Christmas days I remember. There was a concert on the ward and the St John ambulance nurses danced with patients to a band from the RAF unit. Captain Murray served tinned turkey, handing round cold beer to go with it. I think everyone broke their diet today. Private Watkins, a little worse for drink, chased Matron Tobin down the steps. Everyone sang songs around the piano. When the day stuff came off duty at 8pm, we were swept off to the mess but nurser by jeep, but we were all pretty tired and came back here at midnight after singing carols with all the men. Over the last couple of years, I've enjoyed sharing some obscure British alternative songs to hopefully give you all a new selection of tunes for Christmas playlists. It always bothers me how people complain about the same old Christmas songs when there are so, so, so many out there. And the ones that are the same old have great, unusual, interesting covers so I do make it my personal festive mission each year to add new songs to my playlists and then share this with everyone who will listen, which is usually my friends trapped in a pub or family trapped in a house with me. But now I also have this podcast to share it with you. So here are four original Christmas songs from some alternative British bands you may not know. First up is a married London duo called Oh Wonder. They formed in 2014 and have released four albums through the record label Island. They've played sold-out shows in cities around the world, appeared on Conan in America, and even run their own coffee shop in London called Nola. But we're here for Christmas, and in 2019 they released a song called This Christmas, which is not the Donny Hathaway soul song. This is a more melancholy affair, with the band acknowledging that holidays can be a tough time for some people, so the song reflect that, with lyrics that go back to the old festive vibe about wishing someone you miss and love was with you for the season. And I'm longing for the snow to disappear Hey now, if I close my eyes now Shut all the world out, just you and me I 
Next up is Citizen Helene, a London-based musician and DJ who makes 60s pop-inspired music. In 2014, independent record label Hand of Glory released a brilliant compilation called Christmas Joy in Full Measure. All 12 tracks were original numbers from their artist roster, and Citizen Helene had this lovely sumptuous meander chord on Christmas Day that summons up appropriate warm fuzzy feels. up is Mary Hepworth, a singer-songwriter who was also signed to Hand of Glory. She's released two albums and played many festivals such as South by Southwest, The Great Escape and Best of All. She's performed with the likes of Boy George and Bernard Butler. Interestingly, she's also scored music for podcasts such as Welcome to Night Vale and Within the Wires, even touring with the Night Vale podcast. But her festive tune also appeared as the opening track on the aforementioned compilation Christmas Joy in Full Measure and is a compulsive electronic number that mentions mistletoe in winter. So therefore, it's a Christmas song, and it's called The Wolf and the Woods. Finally, one of my favourite new indie bands who I've seen a few times are Gaffer Tape Sandy, a garage rock trio from Bury St Edmunds. They've played a lot of festivals too, such as Latitude, Truck and Glastonbury. They're signed to Alcopop Records, and they've released one very good album called Family Mammal and a number of singles. But of course they released a Christmas song called Black Christmas in 2017, and it's a pounding track all about the creepy side of Christmas and winter. Take it back, press and rewind We don't leave our friends behind Scream for the killer, you're the first Go, the broken hand in the puppet show And I've been counting the bumps in the night We're all caught under this blanket of moonlight Drink from the bottle, you're the star of the show Wine and whiskey shows you where to go And so And that's it for the March episode of Merry Britsmas. 
please get in touch with me via Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at Merry Britsmas. Have you read The Blue Carbuncle or seen an adaptation? Do you think it's festive enough? Could or should we have more festive Sherlock stuff? Or just more festive whodunits, please? Get in touch and let me know if you feel the same. And happy blooming Christmas to you and all.